So the question is today, do you believe in hell? If so, what kind of hell do you believe in? The Pew Research did a study, and it said, oh, so many things. It's interesting to me, a few things stand out. Uh, as far as, you'll notice, uh, one, two, three, fourth, fourth line down, 91% uh, of evangelicals believe in hell, which really is not a surprise. You'll also notice that more women believe in hell than men. Maybe it's because women believe that they're going through hell in a male-dominated society. Uh, more people in the South believe in hell than uh, people anywhere else. Uh, the political parties differ on the belief in hell. That's found in the Pew Research, and if you're interested in looking more at that, it is an interesting snapshot of what our culture thinks about and believes about hell. So do you believe in hell? To answer that, maybe we need to ask the question, what the hell is hell? Well, hell is a town in Michigan. <laughs> there is actually a hell, Michigan. Their, their tagline is, uh, <clears throat> I have been to hell and had a hell of a good time. And in Michigan, hell does freeze over, I, I suppose. Well, in the Christian world, there are four views of hell. The first view is one that I was raised with, and maybe you all were too, the eternal conscious torment view of hell. When I was in fifth, sixth grade, and then in middle school, junior high, what we called it then, seventh and eighth grade, there was a, a publication called Chick, C-H-I-C-K, tracks. They had gospel tracks, and they were very, very engaging. I'm hearing an echo. Are y'all hearing an echo? Is it bothering you? It's bothering me a little bit. I don't like to hear myself once, much less an echo that comes back. Thank you. And so this chick track kind of explains a little bit about the imagery, imagery and, it, and it was designed just to scare us. And it really did a good job. We had a lot of conversions when we would pass out chick tracks. Well, the eternal conscious torment that is seen in things like that basically says this, accept Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior and you will go to heaven. But if you don't, well, the Bible is quite clear according to this version, this view. If you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, then it's all over. Well, the torment and the torture is not all over. It has just begun. And the torment and the tor torture and the anguish and the, uh, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth has just begun, and it will go on forever and ever. There's a story, preachers always come up with stories that uh, will, they think, lead or probably scare people into accepting Jesus into their life. And one of the most... Uh, often used stories is about a, a grandmother, 72 years old. Her name was uh, Carol Fuller. She lived alone in West Hollywood. And during a home invasion robbery, she was locked in a closet. And the uh, thief ransacked her home and stole her cars. And what makes this story even more horrible is the fact that there was no one uh, around to even know this was happening. And days later, the investigators 
found her dead in that closet with her fingers cut from her clawing, trying to get out of that closet. And preachers would end that story with something like, Carol Fuller left this world experiencing much the same horror as you will in eternity if you don't accept Jesus into your life. And then the instrumentalist would start playing just as I am. And people would fill the aisle and the altar wanting to escape the horrors of trying to claw your way out of death and destruction. Well, the view of the eternal conscious torment that you're going to burn in hell forever if you don't accept Jesus was taught to us as I was taught this as a very young child. And it played a big role in my wanting to become a Christian because nobody wants to, wants to go to hell. And in a, in a booklet that I found this week, and there are so many just like this, there's a page out of that booklet where the adult is instructed to explain to the children that to break God's rules is called sin. And then it says, because we all sin, we all deserve to be punished by God forever in a terrible place called hell. And that was the image that I was taught even as young as five or six years old. And hell was a very real part of our gospel presentation and our understanding. And this message of punishment in hell if you don't accept Jesus in your life may have started as a child, but it continued as adult. Maybe you all heard, have heard of Rick Warren. He uh, was pastor at Saddleback Church, a Southern Baptist church. It used to be, and they were asked to leave the SBC. But uh, he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life several years ago. And Rick Warren says... The gospel is this, you are a wretched, miserable, sinful creature who deserves to die and go to hell. And unless you repent of your sins, unless you realize that you deserve to be crushed under the weight of the majesty and holiness of God, you don't get it. You don't understand it. Yeah. So that is the message of the eternal conscious torment view of hell. And like I said, that's the majority view in evangelical world. 91% of evangelicals believe that is the proper way and the accurate way to understand hell. But there's another version, Christian version of hell. It's called annihilation or conditional immortality. This view holds that those who die without accepting Jesus into their life are sentenced to a season of suffering in hell. And that season depends on how bad you were. Because it might take longer for some of us to have our sins paid for. We have to suffer longer than other people. I mean, uh, John down here on the front row, you know, six months suffering and he's out of there. You know, myself, it might be 10,000 years that I have to suffer. But with annihilation, it says you're going to be in hell and you're going to pay for your sins. You still owe a debt. And you will pay for your sins by suffering. And then when the payment is made, the debt is complete. Well, you're not going to go to heaven after that, but you just die. You just are annihilated. 
you cease to exist. And that was a very common view, especially in the first uh, few hundred years of Christianity. But the third way to understand this is universal reconciliation. In this view, there is a fire. It's more metaphorical than it is literal, though. And this medical fire, instead of punishing a person, purifies a person. Instead of the punishment being retributive, it is restorative. And so under universal reconciliation, if, if a terrible, murderous person dies, it doesn't mean that that person immediately goes to heaven and God says, gosh, I'm glad to see you. Let's go get a drink. And everything is just hunky-dory. With the universal reconciliation theory, this person who is as horrible and terrible uh, does experience the metaphorical fire. And the purpose of that fire, though, is not to punish. It is to purify and to melt away everything in that person's life that just does not look like love. And once that purification process is over, then there is reconciliation with God. There is uniting with all things in the earth. So it's not an ollie ollie oxen free. It is a, a metaphorical purification and a refining type of fire. And there are, you're probably familiar with the verses on the eternal conscious torment, but you may not be so familiar with some of these with universal reconciliation. And uh, I'll just give you a couple here after you type me a question. <clears throat> Paul writes to the Corinthians, <clears throat> for no one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen, for the day will make it clear, because it will be revealed by fire. There's that metaphor, fire, again. And the fire will test what kind of work, whether it's gold or straw, and what kind of work each has done. If what someone has built survives, if, if, if it's built from love and out of a heart of love, then he'll receive a reward. If someone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here, Paul seems to say that it's not just the righteous people who are saved. It's even the per people who, who have work like straw as compared to gold. That was his metaphor. But, yeah, all the junky stuff in his life will be burned out, will be melted away, but the person himself, herself, themselves, will be saved. That's a pretty powerful statement to me. And the fire in universal reconciliation is a temporary fire. It doesn't last forever. The writer to the Hebrews, this is also in the New Testament, the Christian scripture, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter he accepts. Endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons, as children. For what child is there that a father does not discipline? I love the fact that we all know John 3.16 just from watching sports events, if nothing else. God so loved the world. 
And that's all of us people and all of the creatures. And if God loves us, he's going to discipline us when we get out of line. God loves everyone, so God disciplines everyone. I just love the image of God as a, as a loving parent who disciplines uh, her children. And I automatically go back to those times of childhood when my dad, mother didn't discipline me that much, but dad did. And when I was a kid growing up, we knew nothing about time out. We knew a lot about the woodshed. And so when I was disciplined, uh, you know, dad would take off his belt and um, pull my pants down and, and he'd just go at it and just whip me. And uh, it seemed like it was forever. But there was a limit to the length that dad whipped, whipped me. And uh, it was temporary. It didn't go on and on and on. Now, when our boys were little and we did spank them a few times, and I do regret that. I might talk about that in another series. But maybe you're raising your children with the idea of time out. And I think it's an appropriate way to, to discipline. And maybe you were put into timeout when you were a kid. But look at you now. You are not still in timeout. With the eternal consciousness uh, torment theory, Dad is still spanking me. Dad's still whipping my butt. With the eternal consciousness torment, you're still in time out. It never, ever ends. The spanking just continues. The fire just continues. 50 years, 500 years, 5 million years, an infinite length of time. I can't imagine being spanked as hard as Dad spanked me on and on and on. That's abusive. That's not discipline. That's not love. That's abusive behavior. So it makes me think, when I was going back and forth and my understanding of hell, one of the things that caused me to want to leave behind the eternal conscious torment and torture view of hell is that God is a dad, God is a mom, God is a parent. And God's a better parent than I am. God's a better parent than my dad is. And my dad didn't keep on whipping me, and I didn't keep on spanking Daniel or Devin. There was a limit to that. And if there's a limit from an earthly dad to spanking and disciplining a child, then wouldn't God have a limit too? This verse in Matthew, Jesus says, If you all then know, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is comparing and contrasting. You all as earthly parents... You give good things to your kids, but dad is a perfect parent. God is a perfect parent, rather. God is a perfectly loving parent, and God will no doubt give good gifts to his children. So 
if my dad, an earthly parent, and if me, an earthly parent, limited the discipline, and I'm sinful, and I'm messed up, and I don't do things right, the perfect parent, the divine parent, wow, there's no way that it, that discipline will be forever. This didn't make sense to me. Another verse that moved me away from the eternal conscious theory was another writing of Paul to the Corinthians. Paul says in his understanding, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. It sure sounds like from Paul's perspective that if death is given to every person because of the sin of Adam, then because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, all will be made alive. That sounds universal. It sounds like everybody's going to be reconciled. If one denies universal reconciliation of this verse, then you'd also have to deny the universal lostness and death that Paul talks about. One of my favorite verses of Paul's is in his letter to the Ephesians regarding God's plan of the fullness of time and everything is over, so to speak, on earth. To bring His plan is to bring all things together in Christ. Things in the heaven and things on earth. So not just people, but all creation together. Universal reconciliation. Bringing things together. Today, we live in a time that eternal torment in hell is the accepted view, and any other view seems to be questionable. And if you hold any other view than that, you're not just a liberal, you're probably a heretic. So I just want to tell you that if your pastor is a heretic, then you're probably a heretic too. And if people know that you're a part of the venues, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you're kind of lumped in with me. Is it okay? All right. Okay. For some of us, that's okay. But I, I've had the, the, the heretic label given to me numerous times, and I, I looked for a, a shirt that had heretic on it, because I'm, I'm just a happy, holy heretic, and I, I'm just very glad of it. Yeah, but I just want to let you know that in the first 300, maybe even the 500 years of Christianity, the universal reconciliation position was the most widely held. Now, there was a guy named Augustine who lived in the 4th century. He did believe in the eternal conscious torment, and, and that probably explains a, a lot why Western Christianity believes that too. But in the first, but even Augustine, who believed in eternal torment, said this. He said, there are very many in our day who, though not denying in the Holy Scriptures, do not believe in endless torments. So Augustine admitted, yeah, there are a lot of people who believe, uh, other than I do, does not, do not believe in an hell being an endless torment. 
And there's a lot of scripture to back that up. There's a lot of scripture. You could have any, any one of those three views of hell, and you could have Bible verses to back each one of them up. Folks, the Bible does not speak with a unified voice on hell or most any topic. So nobody can ever say the Bible clearly says. If you want to hold to the eternal torment theory, then go for it. You've got the Bible to back you up. If I want to go with a universal reconciliation theory, I'm going to go for it. And I've got Bible verses to back it up. In fact, through the first 500 years of Christianity, there were six known theological seminaries, schools at that point. It's interesting to me how they were broken down. Four of those schools held to the universal reconciliation view. One school held to the annihilation view and one to the endless punishment view. It seems to me, just based on that, the dominant view for the first 500 years was universal reconciliation. So what happened? Why did the ECT, eternal conscious torment, become the dominant one and everything else just kind of lost their voice? Well, the one school that had endless punishment was located, guess where? Rome, the seat of the Catholic Church, the seat of Western Christianity. Eastern Christianity is more the universal reconciliation that was in Constantinople. We are influenced by Rome, especially when Rome, the Roman Empire, became married to the church, the church to the Roman Empire. That happened around 380 when uh, Theophilus became the Roman Empire, and he made Christianity the state-sanctioned religion. So Christianity was the religion that was sanctioned by the Roman Empire. When that happened, uh, theologians could continue to debate their different views on theology, their different views on God. And, but instead of winning their point by debate and by discussion, now then, with it being a state-sponsored religion, they could use their political power to convince people that a particular view was right. So just because a belief survived as the majority in the Roman Empire does not mean that that particular belief was the right one. It just meant that there was more political power, that the people who held that belief had more political power than anybody else. And so when Christianity and that view of Christianity became the dominant state-sponsored religion, the political power of that made people believe a particular way of theology. It's not too different from what's happening in Texas right now. The state senate in the Lone Star State has passed a bill that will require every classroom in the state of Texas to have the Ten Commandments uh, on display. The Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick of Texas, supports that. And the Lieutenant Governor says, I will never stop fighting for religious liberty in Texas. 
allowing the Ten Commandments and prayer back into our public schools is one step we can take to make sure that all Texans have the right to freely express their sincerely held religious beliefs. Boy, it just... All Texans have the right to religious liberty. Except the Buddhist and the Muslims and the Sikhs and the Hindus and the atheists. So why would this be so popular in a state like Texas or any state basically in the South. It's not because the different religions had the opportunity to debate and to discuss. It's because a particular brand of Christianity has political power. And that brand of Christianity, then again, can then be forced upon people against their will. Uh, that's not the country that I believe the United States wants to be or is. A lot of similarities between the Roman Empire of Constantine and, and the different politicians and legislatures today. And then when Christianity became the uh, state-sponsored religion in the Roman Empire, I think the church and the state saw that the view of, of eternal torment could be a useful tool to control people. If we can scare people into thinking that if they don't follow our particular plan, our particular rules, our particular faith, if we can scare them with the threat of spending eternity in hell, gosh, yeah, that'll be very effective. And I believe that's one reason why eternal torment became so popular. Philosopher Paul Cahello says, if you want to control someone, all you have to do is to make them feel afraid. I wonder if the church picked eternal torment as the primary view so they could better control people. Get more people in the seats. Get more money in the offering plate. Fear motivates. Fear works. But fear does not coincide with the Apostle John who says, perfect love casts out fear. I asked a question on my Facebook page at the beginning of last week about people's view of hell. One person says, it's a scare tactic to give your life to God. So here's what I had to reconcile. When I asked myself how love changed my worldview of hell, I had to reconcile, is God a parent who says, do as I say, not as I do? Here's what I mean by this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son could do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in the same way. So what Jesus sees God do is what Jesus does. And when we see Jesus do something, we know that he is doing it because he sees the Father doing it. So what does Jesus do? Well, there are so many things that Jesus does. 
One thing that Jesus does, he says this, I want you all when you're offended, when somebody hurts you, I want you to forgive them 70 times seven times. And that was a metaphor for saying to infinity and beyond. There is no end to forgiveness. That's what Jesus says. He says that because God must have said that. Eternal forgiveness. But I got to, had a problem with that. How can I believe in eternal torment? How can I believe that if Jesus says, forgive throughout eternity? I could not anymore hold the ECT view, eternal torment view, because God says, forgive throughout infinity. What else does Jesus say? Jesus says to love our enemies. But with the eternal torment view, Jesus tortures his enemies. I couldn't reconcile that with God. Jesus says to bless people who curse you. That's a tough thing to do. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. That must mean that he heard God say, bless those who curse you. But those who hold the eternal conscious torment view, you have to admit that God is not blessing those who curse them. God is torturing those who curse him. So I couldn't reconcile that view with what I saw Jesus do. And if Jesus does what he does, he does it because he sees God does it. So I have to ask you, out of those three views, eternal conscious torment, annihilation, or universal reconciliation, which of those views best represents Jesus? Because there's biblical background or biblical support for every view. And I just had to ask myself, which view best represents Jesus? You may have a question about that. One of my favorite artists is David Hayward. Two people in hell, why would he send us here? Well, he said, because he loves us. I left the eternal conscious torment position because of love. Love just does not allow me to do that. Love did not allow me to continue to spank Devin. There was a limit. I wish I had never done it at all. But there was a limit to it. Love just does not let me. It may let you, and that's okay. Love just did not let me to think that God would continue to punish and to discipline. You know, there's another view of hell. I said, therefore, i got to hurry up. The other view of hell is that we're living through hell by the way we act. That we have the power within us to create a heaven for people. We have the power to create a hell for people. Another person on Facebook said, My entire childhood was driven by the terror of hell because it is full of fire and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable thirst, along with torture from demons. As a mid to late teen into young adulthood, I lived in hell. Homelessness, sexual assaults, drug addiction, I was lost. 
Oh, he, she goes on. It's just very, very, very touching. Carlton Pearson was at the top of an evangelical charismatic mountain. He, he was a, a powerful preacher. He would take chartered jets all over the world to preach to fundamentalist groups. He was on a prayer team with uh, uh, senior President Bush. And uh, he was just highly respected, highly regarded. But then Carlton became involved in a scandal. It wasn't sex. It wasn't drugs. It was not embezzling. The scandal was he quit believing in hell. Or at least his former view of hell. And he was labeled a heretic because of it. And he lost everything. For years, he had preached a conventional view of hell, the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And that the only way to avoid that was to accept Jesus. But he began to doubt that view for two reasons. Number one, he began to read the scripture and saw that the scripture does not teach one view of hell. But the second reason was this. These are his words. When my little girl was an infant, I was watching the evening news. The Hutus and the Tutsis were returning from Rwanda to Uganda. Peter Jennings was doing a piece on it. Now, Majesty was in my lap, my little girl. I'm eating the meal. I'm watching these little kids with swollen bellies, and it looks like their skin is stretched across their little skeletal remains. Their hair is kind of red from malnutrition. The babies, they've got flies in the corners of their eyes, in their mouths. They reach for their mother's breast, and the mother's breast looks like a little pencil hanging there. I mean, the baby's reaching for the breast, and there's no milk. And I, with my little fat-faced baby and a plate of food and a big screen TV, I said, God, I don't know how you could call yourself a loving, sovereign God and allow these people to suffer this way and just suck them into hell, which is what my assumption was. And I heard the voice say within me, so that's what you think we're doing? And I remember I didn't say yes or no. I did say, that's what I've been taught. We're sucking them into hell. God said, and I said, yes. And what would change that, God asked. Well, they need to get saved. And God said, how would that happen? Well, somebody needs to preach the gospel to them and get them saved. So God says, so if you think that's the only way that they're going to get saved is for somebody to preach the gospel to them, that we're sucking them into hell, why don't you put your little baby down, turn your big screen TV off, push your plate away, get on the first thing that smokes, airplane or car or whatever, and go get them saved. And I remember I broke into tears. I was so upset. God says, you think we're sucking them into hell? And God said, can't you see they're already there? That is hell. You keep creating and inventing that for yourselves, but I'm taking those people into my presence. And I thought, well, I'll be. That is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That is where the pain comes from. We do that to each other, and we do it to ourselves. Then I saw the emergency rooms. I saw divorce court. I saw jails and prisons. I saw how we create hell on this planet for each other. For the first time in my life, I did not see God as the inventor of hell. So the Trinity is looking at hell. So our people have been at this place. They call hell for us to send people they don't like. Do we invent hell? 
by how we treat people. Jesus does talk about hell, and when he does, he's really pissed about it. But he never talks about hell as the fate of those who don't accept him. Never does he do that. He does talk about hell in relationship to experience where people are mistreated, where the poor are not taken care of, where the prisoners are not visited, where we hoard our, he- our wealth. That's when he talks about hell. Hell, when Jesus talks about it, is always in the context of how we treat people. And I don't know if he is saying that those who mistreat people are going to go to hell. Or if he is saying that we create a hell for people who are being, that we are mistreating. But it's never connected as a fate of those who reject him. It's always connected to how we treat other people. And how the heck did I not ever see that? John tells us that the kingdom of heaven is within us, it is around us, it's in our midst. I wonder then if the kingdom of hell can be within us and around us. John Milton, 1600. I love John Milton. He wrote Paradise Lost. He was opposed to (laughs) the royalty. He would not have gone to King Charles's coronation. He was opposed to that whole thing. He was opposed to the state church, and he was not very popular among the leadership of Britain. But he says, the mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. The fourth view of heaven or hell is this. Hell is something that we create when we do not act in loving ways to other people. There are Bible verses for each view. My desire for you is not to come to any side or leave any side. My desire for you is to understand today the power that you have to create for other people either a heaven or a hell, as Jesus so frequently communicates. Do you remember when Jesus taught his disciples the model prayer, and at the end of it, he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I remember in youth group, uh, Evil was having sex before you got married. That was what I was always praying I'd be delivered from, lust and all that stuff. But I wonder if Jesus had in his mind the evil that he saw when people were mistreated, when the marginalized were abused, when people were not treated as with dignity and the humanity with which they were instilled by God. That is evil. Deliver us from mistreating people. Deliver us from evil acts toward others. Deliver us from the temptation to do that, to think we're better than other people, to think that our group is the best group. 